Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm sitting here with the Keith Floyd of British Soul, Mr. Mark Pringle. <laughs> Hello, Barney. <laughs> Hi, Mark. Keith Floyd could be Keith Richards because we're actually talking about Keith in depth this week. Keith Richards, the heart and soul of the Rolling Stones, who turned 75 earlier this week. We have a very long audio interview with Keith by Adam Sweeting from 2002. And we're going to start with a clip from that. Such a funny story. I mean, it doesn't, you wouldn't, you, know, you couldn't make it up fiction, really. And I get popped, you know. Uh, first up, they have to, you can't arrest somebody if they're not awake. You see, <laughs> and I'd been up for four or five days, and I'd just gone to sleep, and then they arrived. But they're walking me around the room. Apparently, I mean, this is a story I hear. Because I'm asleep, so I'm still walking around the room. There were two mountains, and, and uh, you know, until finally I sort of snapped to it. I was say, "Okay, he's you know, he's away. You know, you're under arrest. Oh, great. Well, I'm going to promptly go back to sleep again." Okay? <laughs> and. Uh, no, I was knackered, you know, but, uh, <laughs> so we go into all of that, but okay, it's a bus, it's a fair cop, and I don't like that. Um, but this case drags on now, it dragged on for like two years, and the thing with me in Toronto is that every time they came up for a court hearing, loads of people in Toronto, great people, you know, but, but outside, they go, let's stop this ridiculous farce, you know, free Keith and all of that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the wheels of justice keep grinding on and I'm flying back in and out. And because uh, Margaret Trudeau is a, uh, she's a fun girl, um, uh, <laughs> looming around the, uh, uh, the corridors of the Harbour Castle Hotel down there. You know, um, in some weird way, that story, you know, mixed up with, it's kind of like Marianne and the Mars Bar. Uh, <laughs> and it's all totally untrue, but at the same time, that's the way the information came to people that, you know, read their paper or watch the news. Yeah, that, that, that's dear old Keith talking about his Toronto drug bust. It's a great interview. I mean, it's, it's, it's long. It's an hour and 50 minutes. And he's clearly fairly pissed, in us, as us English say, drunk. You can hear the clinking of ice in the glass, and he becomes more and more slurred as the interview goes. <laughs> a little bit roly burkin esque A bit roly burkin esque Yeah, but not to the point of incoherence. No. Close. But, but well, not exactly. Truth is, I didn't, I didn't have time to listen to the very end of the interview, so I don't quite know what sort of state keeps him by the end of it. I think I got about two thirds of the way through, and he's still sort of semi coherent, but there are sort of moments where he's like, What did he say there? Um, he, he does great interviews, does old Keith. He's, he, he'll tell stories as long as someone's in front of him to listen to them, and they're pretty good stories. He's a, he's, I mean, I think uh, that I, 
interviewed him probably in the same house that he's talking to Adam Sweeting in in this interview because he always rents the same house when the Stones get ready to go on yeah. tour in, uh, in, in, as he calls it, Toronto. <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember arriving there. So this is probably a, um, two, three years before Adam did this. And I arrived at this at this uh, quite sort of large secluded house on the outskirts of Toronto and there's this enormous minder uh, who, who greets me with the words, Welcome to Doom Manor. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I think he said, It's Lordship's inside waiting for you. Anyway, <laughs> but I had the same sort of experience yeah. in a way that Adam clearly has with this. I mean, yeah. he, he's, you know, he's one of the most genial drunks, uh, certainly <laughs> at that point. I mean, it's interesting because, um, as, as you were saying to me earlier, he announced last week that he's at least uh, cutting out the hard stuff. Yeah. Yes. The hard liquor, yeah. uh, almost stopping drinking. Uh, I mean, uh, his his line is that actually he would become a really bad drunk and that he turned nasty when he was on hard liquor. Um, he's clearly on hard liquor in this interview and he's utterly charming, you know. Well, he was clearly on hard liquor when I spoke to him. There's this, this sort of glass of, of, of radioactive-looking liquid uh, whose contents are quite determined. But, yeah, it did become increasingly what did you, slur. What did, you, what did you reckon was in the glass? It's probably some kind of mixture of Jack Daniels and sort of orange squash or something like Fanta. Fanta, yeah, yeah. But he is a delight, and there is this great willingness, possibly, you know, uh, helped by alcohol, to just sort of talk at length about whatever Adam's asking him about, including yeah. Alan Klein. Uh, well, he's, he's, very, he's very interesting about Alan Klein. Alan Klein is now sort of gone into sort of the mythology of rock as this sort of devilish figure who screwed every artist that he went near. He's very funny because he says, basically, he rang up, was it George or John Lennon said that we know... What about Alan Klein? And then a week later, the Beatles sign up with Alan Klein. So, yeah. But he's actually, he speaks rather fondly of him. It's just very interesting. You know, he says, yeah, he ripped us off, but he taught us a lot mm. in the process of mm. being ripped off by him. And that he still gets in touch. If he's going to sell a track that he has the rights to for an ad to an advertiser, he mm. always asks mm. sort of stuff, you know. Uh, and there's, there's this grudging respect from Keith for Alan Klein of all people, which is, which is great. He also talks uh, at some length about Andrew Lou Golden, about how Andrew Lou Golden was the guy who stopped stopped them just staying in the rut of being a pub and club yeah, blues band, blues purists, uh, yeah. and starting to write pop songs and so on and so forth. And he also talks about writing, about writing satisfaction in particular, about how it wasn't finished as far as he's concerned. They'd just done a sort of demo, and next thing you know, it's in the charts. And he, he says, you know, if I'd, if, if, if I'd finished it the way I wanted it, it would be more like Otis's, Otis Redding's version than, than the Stones' mm. version. But no, it's great stuff. I mean, the other thing is, you know, he looks back on everyone fondly. <laughs> he talks sadly about the casualties without ever accepting any responsibility for them. He talks about Jimmy Miller and likes of that, you know. And the fact is that these, these people would probably still be alive if they hadn't worked with Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could be right, you know. I mean, it's worth just stating the bleeding obvious, really. Well, two things. A, how has this man managed to reach the age of 75? <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, you know... 
what is it that makes Keith Richards so great? Well, first, first of all, I mean, the, uh, your friend John Crace did a digested read of Keith's autobiography, and it was illustrated in The Guardian with this, this cartoon of a figure of death crouched, vomiting profusely into a lavatory surrounded by pills and syringes. Yes. And Keith looking at you with the words lightweight coming out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and in a way, that is the secret to his longevity, is, is, is that he, he's clearly made of sterner stuff than most of us. You know, he, he simply has had... A bit like Lemmy, actually. Lemmy, who should have been dead, 30 years ago, you mm. know, um, people around him dropped like flies and Lemmy kept going to, what, a couple of years ago, 75 mm. or something? Mm. So, you know, Keith's made of stern stuff. He is. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, he is the heart and soul of what makes the Rolling Stones so great, I think. Oh, uh, I mean, it amuses me when he talks about Jagger and, and, and I remember saying the same thing to me in so many words, which is, you know, everyone thinks, uh, you know, Mick's the businessman and I just get woken up to do the shows, you know. And let me tell you, man, it's not quite like that, <laughs> you know. I mean, he sort of said that to me. Uh, and I think he slightly resents the idea that, you know, Mick is very switched on to all of that well, well, he, and he, he, he just shows up yeah he does and he doesn't he also likes the fact that in some ways Mick is regarded as the business person he's regarded as a creative so he's sort of he's, he's both he's, mm. he, he straddles that, that fence very interestingly but anyway it's, it, it's, it is pretty fab, fabulous stuff it, it's great listening to him uh, and um you know, uh, one of the things that uh, we put together this week is a Spotify playlist of Keith sung classics, his own solo stuff from his own, you know, his, his own albums, mm. and then the uh, rare occasions when yeah. uh, Mick allows him to, <laughs> to sing a song on a Rolling Stones record. And there's there's some extraordinary tracks, mainly kind of ballads that are tucked away, um, usually at the ends of Rolling Stones albums. I think they're some of some of the most sort of haunting things the Stones have ever done. One of his vocal performances of the Stones was actually by accident that the engineer wiped Mick's lead vocal and Mick wasn't around. There were, I think... Uh, uh, you got the silver? That's the first it, one it, he ever it, sang. It, it, it may have been. Mm. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I mm. think actually Mick had sung that mm. and Mick wasn't around. Mixed vocal being wiped, so Keith went and did it. Yeah. It's actually a very nice performance. I know there's a side thing to that is that just quite recently the Stones re released as part of their uh, Sticky Fingers Ultra Deluxe Edition or whatever it is a bunch of live stuff from the, the Roundhouse and Leeds University in 1971. Mm. You can see why they didn't release it at the time because <laughs> Keith's backing vocals are beyond out of tune. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean he's but not br- a singer. Is no, it? It, I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, it, they're really good live tracks. I mean, the band absolutely at their best. 1971, I'd say, was peak Rolling Stones, you know. Mm. But, but yeah, he's, his relationship with harmony is... I mean, I, 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 I really do. He really is one of my heroes. Whatever you think of the Rolling Stones now, I think that he has come up with some of the most extraordinary oh, yeah. and powerful... You know, riffs. He's known as the human riff, but they are—they're—they're they're, they're just so much more subtle, actually, it, and complex it, in terms it, of their tunings yeah. and their moods. Yeah. Is it fair to say that 
like myself, you're a 68 to 72 Stones I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm a Jimmy Miller man, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Wow. So, so those albums that Jimmy, who was not a kind of old school producer, no. but was like a kind of sixth Stone, yeah. wasn't yeah. he, in a way? Yeah. And as you say, kind of succumbed to, to all the sort of temptations that were there. But that period from Beggars yeah. really through to, uh, well, to Exile, essentially. Yes. There isn't yeah. much that's great beyond yeah. that. The odd great track, though, as, as I say, I think if you listen to later albums like Steel Wheels, yep. Voodoo Lounge, Bridges to Babylon, you'll find after all these terrible songs, mainly kind of generated by Mick Jagger, there's always a rather <laughs> rather brilliant Keith, essentially solo Keith Actually, track at the you end. Know, I, I, it would be good if someone put together a playlist of the handful of good tracks on those subsequent albums, which is quite interesting to, mm. to just put them together mm. because you can't listen to the albums themselves. No. They're just, there's just nothing there. No, I think that, that that's right. But, so, um, so, shall we hear another clip? Yeah, I mean, um, talking about him and Mick, let me see, um, this is him on Anita Pallenberg and Mick. <laughs> Which you may have read before. Where are we? What did she say? She said, from when I first met them, I saw Mick was in love with Keith. It's like it's like they're married and they'll probably stay that way for the rest of their lives, is what she said. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'll pick that up. Uh, even if Mick and I didn't want to ever see each other again, ever, ever, ever <laughs> in the world, we can't even go divorced. We'd still have to come together and talk about our babies. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. And in a way, that's I think Anita spotted that really early on. You know, there we are. Yeah, he's the old woman. Uh, <laughs> the old woman. He keeps the books, you know, and I churn out the produce, you know. Basically, in a way, she's very. I mean, Anita is a very bright girl and always has been. You know. and she made a man out of me. Nearly tries the hard way around. <laughs> what else can we say about Keith? I mean, uh, well, Keith and Anita. Keith and Anita. Well, yeah, you, well, we can so go on to Well, it's a perfect segue in a way yeah. because the Free on RBP feature this week centres around performance, the extraordinary film by the late Nicholas Rogue. Nick Rogue, who uh, who we lost this year. Um, last week, was it last week? Week before last? It was yeah. very recently, yeah. um, at our age, last week, last <laughs> month. Uh, <laughs> it's yesterday, <laughs> frankly. But, uh, well, let, me, let, let me clarify, it's, it's a Nick Rogue film, but it, it, it's equally a Donald Camel yeah. film. So it's one of the key artefacts, wouldn't you say, of the late 60s. Oh, yeah. This extraordinary film starring Mick Jagger as as a rock star, as a kind of version of himself, mm-hmm. uh, Turner, and there's a famous uh, song on the soundtrack called Memo from Turner. And there's this um, absolutely bewitching figure, Ferber, in the film, played by Anita Pallenberg. And uh, before we even kind of touch on what did or didn't happen... <laughs> in the bath. On set or <laughs> off set. In the bath, out of the bath... Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's she's such a sort of iconic presence yeah. in this film, and she was such a, an important figure in the Stones' story. Absolutely. Um, I mean, for, you know, first of all, she hooked up with Brian Jones, um, and then she moved fairly swiftly on on on, on to Keith. To well, Keith. Keith's are rescued. Her yes, from, that's, from, that's right. From the abusive yep. and violent and thoroughly 
sort of hopeless yes. Brian Jones. Now, now I mean, you know, the, the story is that when they were filming performance, that Keith would sit in his Bentley parked down the road from Power Square in a fury of jealousy because he was convinced that Anita and Mick were getting up to no good. You know, no idea of the, the, the truth of that one. But it's an extraordinary film. Um, well, so uh, just to interject, yeah. sorry, the, 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 the main kind of pretext for this feature is a new book by Jay Glenny, which is a large format picture book with text in it, uh, an oral history, essentially, of performance. Mm -hmm. And um, he was able to uh, get to, not Anita, because she'd already departed this world, but he uh, managed to interview Nick Rogue for right. it. He managed to interview the producer, Sandy Lieberson, and with a, a real coup, he managed to get Mick Jagger to talk to him. Wow. So, there's, so there's quotes there from Mick, and we've just got a kind of, it's, it's an excerpt it's something that Jay's put together mm -hmm. for us and one of the things Mick says in it is I know what happened uh, it, the, the, the myths are so good let's stick with the myths or something <laughs> on that front but we've also got um, from the time a kind of preview of the film by Jacoba Atlas in Melody Maker uh, raving about about performance so that's really good she she got to see it i think in in la as a, a, a kind of press screening before yeah. before it, it as 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 some listeners will know it was a film essentially it was shot in 1968 it didn't come out till 1970 because i didn't right warner brothers were so disturbed by it really really yeah yeah and that brings us on to one of the most disturbing elements of performance which is the extraordinary soundtrack yeah yeah, yeah. Um, which is not a Rolling Stones soundtrack. In fact, there's only one track with Mick singing, as we've already mentioned, Memo from Turner. But it was put together by the great Jack Nietzsche, yep. who's another person who had a kind of walk-on part in the Rolling Stones story. He was the guy who recommended RCA Studios mm -hmm. in, in L.A. for them, where Satisfaction was recorded. Nietzsche got his big break arranging for Phil Spector right. in the early 60s. But he then became this sort of real maverick, cantankerous maverick figure. <laughs> and he was entrusted... With, with the task of putting together a soundtrack. And in, a, in the third piece we have in this feature, Harvey Kubinick meets him in 1998, not that long before Jack died. And Jack talks about performance. Right. And he says it was the only... Because he did Officer and a Gentleman quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, 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 so he says, he says to Harvey, this was the only time nobody ever interfered. You know, <laughs> he was able to put this extraordinary soundtrack album together and it's got just some of the creepiest weirdest but most mesmerising things I've ever heard including early use of Moog synthesizer. Yep, yep, yep. The Last Poets are on there. Yes. Ry Cooder doing bottleneck stuff. Yeah, um, Randy, Randy Newman. Newman's on it yeah. doing a, a kind of a, a, a very uncharacteristic sort of almost like hard rock. Gone Dead Train. Gone Dead Train. And it, it's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and Buffy St. Marie who was sort of Mrs. Jack Nietzsche. Yeah I mean it's interesting that that the album came out around the same time as that sort of odd, scruffy collection of sort of Stones outtakes. The Jamming with Edward? Jamming with yeah. Edward, uh, which is really not very good at all, but the performance soundtrack album. I mean, everyone knew bought it when I was at school. Mm. We all listened to it. Gone Dead Train, Memo from Turner, it's just fantastic. So, you know, and it, it matches the movie absolutely brilliantly. I mean, and you watch the movie and the, what you're hearing is, is absolutely correct for what's on the screen. It's interesting, I mean, there were a lot of casualties from that film. I mean, Donald Camel sort of more or less vanished without trace. Uh, the, which fox was it? Was it Edward Fox? That's James Fox. James, Fo ja fo James Fox. Oh, oh, and Jay Glenny also talks to James yeah. Fox for the James Fox effectively 
had a religious conversion shortly after making the movie and sort of disappeared from acting for about sort of 30 years. I mean, it was extraordinary. And uh, as he says, as a consequence of, of, of making that film, there's a Strong chance he was spiked with acid at some stage in the process. So it's a dark movie with dark stories surrounding it. If you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's yeah. just fantastic. Yeah, it is. I mean, I said earlier it's a key artefact yeah. and, and of that time, the late 60s. And I think it, it really does... It sort of crystallises that sense of flower power turning into something turning quite quite malevolent yeah. and strange, yeah. Yeah. you know. That uh, the, 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 the main character, the gangster is actually based uh, loosely on a guy who was a kind of scenester slash Soho yes. person whose name entirely escapes me, but I'm sure you could all find this out if you Google it. You know, people deny that there's any truth in that, but actually the, those people around, John Bindon famously yes. around, John Bindon um, was hired by the Grateful Dead in 1974 to pro- help provide security for their Alexandra Palace shows in London, and he walked off with all the money. Mm. <laughs> And the dead just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, there you go, you know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, the Stones were at the kind of centre of this vortex yeah. of social change, yes. weren't they? You know, so so they brought together the sort of aristocracy and the criminal and gangsters, underworld yeah. and gangsters and drug dealers yeah. and movie stars and everyone wanted to be in the court of, yeah. of Mick and Keith. Absolutely. And, and performance is, is very much kind of it's that, about yeah. about that in a way yeah. so 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 there we go performance so it's very stones themed this week it's it's keith keith <laughs> in the audio interview and it's um it, it's performance it's nick rogue it's anita pallenberg moving on to the other free offerings on the homepage this week bringing things much more up to date uh, out of the kind of uh, murky 60s and 70s rbp contributor jason gross who years ago started one of the first like online music magazines perfect sound forever has specifically for us compiled what he regarded as the best 40 pieces of music writing that he's read in the last 12 months right. and it's a it's a very engaging guide to a very sort of widespread a disparate kind of gathering of of pieces on all sorts of subjects mm-hmm. you know uh, sexual harassment the me too movement country music hip hop uh you know uh, uh identity chart pop all sorts of different things mm-hmm. by writers as different as like chris heath former rolling stone veteran jessica hopper um will hermes yeah will hermes write, <laughs> writes a piece about about country music in fact he re- revisits a classic country book by bill c malone country music uh, usa so there's some there's some really interesting stuff what in there. What was Hermes' book? Uh, it was the New York book, wasn't it? That was Love Goes to Building on Fire. Yeah, fantastic book, which is an overview of basically New York music in sort of 77, yeah. loosely, but is much broader than most. It doesn't just look at punk, it looks at salsa, for example. Free jazz. Which, and free jazz. Yeah. Salsa, which has been ignored by nearly all the histories of that particular time. Yes. Great writer, It's Will very, Hermes. very good. It's yeah. very good. And we're privileged to have him on Rock's Back Pages. The other two pieces by Jason that we're featuring are an earlier 1999 interview with Mike D and MCA of The Beastie Boys. And he's talking to them about the, the net. 
as well as about Grand Royal, their yeah. label and yeah. their, their, their kind of company. So that's that's interesting. It's interest, always interesting to me, Mark. I don't know about you, but but uh, reading interviews with people talking about the sorts of relatively early days of the internet, yes, and how it's challenging yeah. their business models and how they make no, music. It, it, I'd say sort of somewhere around 1995, a handful of articles start appearing. Frank Broughton wrote one, I think, for ID. There's, there's a few others where, you know, they're talking about the idea that music could actually come out of, like, your mm. TV set, like, you know, out, out of your, this, this computer thing you've got. And there's a great quote in two of them, to the, the boss of Tire Records saying, who's going to want to listen to music on their computers? Never going to happen. Yes. Come ten years later, Tire Records is bankrupt, you Completely. know. Um, so, yes, it's, it's fascinating People just talking about this this kind of new thing and trying to make sense. Yeah. I mean, even Keith does yes. in that audio interview. Yeah, he, yeah. You know, he sort of says, "Oh, I, I wouldn't know what a mouse was. I put a cat on the mouse, <laughs> you know." But I've got people who do, you know. Yes. So, so that, that that's quite funny. <laughs> but the Beastie Boys, it's been you know a, to some degree a year for them because they put out uh, their fantastic sort of collective autobiography that Faber published, which is which is a wonderful sort of doorstop of a book with. Of amazing pictures in it and, yeah. and kind of oral reminiscences. I, I, I find the Beastie Boys fascinating because mm. they went from being the sort of frat boy cartoon to being real revolution, music revolutionaries, and not something you'd have predicted no. uh, when Fight for the Right to Party came out. Well, example, completely. You know, um, and in this interview that Jason did, Adam, the late Adam yeah. Yauch, uh, talks about his involvement with the Tibetan freedom movement. Yeah. He became so a Buddhist, to go, he? Yeah. yeah, exactly. He was, you know, a really whole admirable fellow, yeah. you know, and a great loss but, to you know, the, the, the music the, the, Going to make albums like Paul's Boutique, which failed at the time, was actually commercially not, 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 not as successful as certainly they would have hoped. And Paul's Boutique now is regarded as a kind of hip-hop Sergeant Pepper. It's, it's, it's... Well, it's one of those classic instances of, like, we're going to do something really different, yeah. brave, and, and uncommercial. Yeah. Because, actually, it's, it's going to determine what, what we do over the yeah. next few years. Yeah. If we try and do Licence to Ill again... I guarantee, it's like they knew yeah. that they would just be sort of, in a sense, that would probably be the yeah. end of the Beastie Boys. Yeah, it, was, it was a brave and, yeah. and, and thing to do, and, and it's a great record. The last yeah. piece by Jason Briefly is the review he wrote for us in 2015 of um, the autobiography of Robert uh, Christgau, or Christgau, the Dean of Rock Critics, uh, Going Into the City is the title of it. And you know, he's clearly a Christgau fan, and he writes at length about you know what Christgau represents. And, I mean, it was a book that wasn't um, that well received in general. Um, I mean, it's sort of, you know, if it had been fiction, it had been nominated for the Bad Sex Award by all accounts. We won't go into that, but it's well worth your while going online and looking up reviews of Christgau's autobiography mm. because some of them are very positive, some of them are hilariously negative, and just, just for entertainment. Interesting, in, in uh, the main piece of his that I mentioned earlier, the roundup of music jazz, he, uh, he links to, or he mentions a conversation that Grill Marcus and Robert Christgau had at the time that Robert's book came out. So it's, it's, a, it's and I had a look at it, it's, it's an interesting sort of <laughs> summit meeting between these two giants of American rock criticism. Sort of slightly self-described giants, I think. Well, a... Dean of Rock Critics, so Dean of American Rock yeah. Critics, I think, was uh, was the, 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 the title that Chris, <laughs> Chris Gow gave himself. And there's no doubt that he was. 
uh, one of the first well, one of important our, rock writers. I mean, one, one of our writers, Mike John, who's his direct New York contemporary um, and wrote for the New York Times, among other things, he, he had a famous, quite famous feud with Kreisgaard, went on for some years. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, there's a lot of feuds in that world, yeah. let, 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 let's be honest. Anyway. So, so that's everything that's free on Rocksback Pages this week. Uh, and at this point, we, um, we turn our attention to what's going into the library for RBP subscribers, Mark. Yeah, there's you know, uh, some, some good highlights. There's a very interesting short interview with Brenda Lee, by Alan Smith and the Enemy in 1965, where she's clearly pretty depressed, actually, you know, and most pop writers struggle to deal with people sounding really depressed because they're not used to it. They're used to people flaunt, you know, flaunting themselves and stuff. Anyway, and, you know, he just asks various fairly bland questions, but she says, I prefer ballads these days. And happily, this is the type of material that is big in the States right now. Ballads and British groups, that is. They could record anything and be a smash here. You just can't grasp how big the British thing is in the States. Which is, you know... Well, you know, she, among many others, was was under threat, yeah. wasn't she? She had been a huge yes. star, kind of in a sort of country pop vein in the yeah. 50s and early 60s. I'm Sorry is probably her most you know, yeah. famous hit. And suddenly, 1965... She can't get arrested. Can't get arrested. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all the Beatles' fault. Yeah. Moving on... Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and I go, can't go, but don't you... Jeffrey Cannon, 1972, on Elvis Presley at Madison Square Garden. It's a, very, it's a long piece which was savagely cut back for publication in The Guardian. He's provided us with um, his original, and it's, it's fabulous. You know, it's a live review, but it's like a 2,000-word live review. And this is great. He describes the audience, and it's interesting in that... that we forget how split the rock audience was in those days. And someone like Elvis Presley, whilst some long hairs and young people would turn up, he was singing to people of his original generation. So he describes them thusly, you know, women dressed in teased wigs, yellow crepe pantsuits scooped to show the tops of their breasts, synthetic semi-see-through white lace stretched browsers, boned bras underneath, ankle-length skirts cut at the side past the knee, fat hips, court shoes, thick paint, Men wore patterned short-sleeved shirts, plastic combat jackets, sideburns, blue cheeks, brilliantined pompadours, prominent belt buckles and watch straps. And I, I, I just love that. It's, it's a, it's a it's just, you know, slightly mocking snapshot of, kind of the average Elvis audience. The demographic. The demographic. Um, yeah, but it's great because, I mean, that's proper writing. Yes. And one misses that, that yeah. back in that day in the kind of wake of the new journalism. Yeah, yeah. You know, music writers were actually, OK, sometimes... Self-consciously, sometimes pretentiously, but at least trying to write yeah. like novelists. Write. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and you know when that works in the hands of a really good writer yeah. like Cannon, I mean it's it, it's such a joy. It, it's it, so refreshing. It absolutely is. Moving on to seventy-nine uh, smash hits. David Hepworth interviewing the Jams. Paul Weller and Paul Weller, even as far back as seventy-nine, was revealing himself as the utter reactionary that he subsequently proved himself to be in just about every respect. And he says, I like nearly all the new bands. I like it all except all this electronic lot. Can't bear all that stuff. You know, it's like, oh, for God's sake, Paul, it's not all just guitar bands. Such mate. a Luddite. Yeah. He's really. such a, you know, and, and he's just gone on and proved that. The over, father. Uh, the, the, over We're and not over the again. biggest fans, are we, Mark? Not really, no. I the Jam. I thought the Jam made some really the terrific jam records. Made, the Jam were a terrific yeah. singles band, weren't they? And, and some would say albums band. And, I mean, you know, I'm not taking anything away from how 
kind of remarkable well mm. it was at that point but what he represents now the the, the this the, the sanctified mod father of brit rock and da- dad rock um dad rock, uh, you yes. know and the thing is there he is in 1979, already sort of starting to espouse those opinions which have become to define him. So that's why I found that particularly interesting. Moving on, a year later, Fleetwood Mac at Wembley Arena, by, reviewed by Paul Rambali. And I'll read a couple of bits from this because it's, it's, it's great stuff. Stevie Nicks kept leaving the stage when she had nothing to do, only to reappear with her hair rearranged and some new layer of translucent apparel presumably spun by wraith children she consorts with when not creating music. <laughs> a, re- a red scarf tied round her, mar- her mic stand marked her absence. Anyhow, the silly, conceited little fawn was shown the door with her limited talents when Christine McVie took the lead for the finale songbird. If we're talking about mere technical range, then McVie puts Nick's to shame, let alone qualities like passion, authority, warmth, depth and gentleness, all of which McVie's voice seems to possess as second nature. I'd have settled for hearing her sing all night, but less contented after one song, wondering if she doesn't feel any ignominy or injustice in having to play second fiddle to the hideous Nicks. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I mean, I, 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 I just love, love that. Jumping forward a decade, Richard Cromelin recording uh, Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted for the LA Times in 1990. Interestingly, the LA Times ran two reviews, one by their house critic Robert Hilburn and one by Richard Cromelin. Hilburn because basically the whole community was split on the, you know, the qualities of the record and its importance, and especially to L.A. Remember, this is this local paper to this stuff. And uh, Cromelin is less keen. It, it'd be nice if his misogyny were an intended illustration of how oppression begets oppression, but that might be giving Ice Cube the benefit of the doubt. Does he really believe that he doesn't encourage the attitudes he depicts? The argument that he's simply reflecting the reality of a particular culture is disingenuous. Andrew Dice Clay could say the same thing. Ice Cube's cruelty might be more explainable, but it won't make the victims feel any better. Which is, you know, is a, is a fair point. Um, mm. And a very, la- very last piece I'd like to raise. 1999, Gary Barlow, interviewed by Caroline Sullivan. Caroline Sullivan is just great at writing about pop. She was herself a mad pop fan in her teens, a uh, Bay City Roller fan. And uh, she understands pop artists and, the pop and pop fans. And this is Gary Barlow feeling pretty bruised because he was the guy meant to make it really big and Robbie Williams was meant to sort of disappear off the face of the planet. And the exact opposite happened. Robbie Williams went on to become a massive star and Gary Barlow stalled, at least. He, he didn't disappear, but his career... Was definitely For a long time. For a long time. Before the X Factor. And he's, ta- he's talking yeah. about exactly this. He said he, that, that he met up with Robbie... Just before Robbie sort of made it big, and Robbie's saying, I made junk the album, nothing's happening, nothing's selling. And Gary Wallace says, I said, don't worry, you'll be okay. The next week, he released Angels, and I've watched in horror ever since. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, I, I, actually, I mean, I had Gary Bollard on Desert Island Disc quite recently. He's quite an engaging guy that he's got this appalling, overweening self confidence, which didn't prepare him for the shock of. Some degree of failure, and and so there's a there's a rawness to him, you know, which is always there. Mm. Whenever he's interviewed, whenever he's talked to, you, you get this odd sort of sense of a man who sort of assumed that everything would go brilliantly for him, and uh, and when it didn't, it really hurt, mm. really, really mm. hurt. I mean, I remember seeing Robbie Williams hanging around with Oasis, yes, right, when he was like drunk and pudgy uh, in sort of ninety six, that's right, ish, yeah. yeah. 
and like backs Glastonbury was it Glastonbury well, I saw them at Earl's Court right. and, and Robbie was sort of hanging on you just thought I mean it never would have occurred to you at that point that this guy was going to become you know the beloved entertainer yeah. of, of 20th century English pop <laughs> um, but all credit to him and of course he's just won his lawsuit against or at least Jimmy Page his yes. neighbour in Kensington has lost his, we should mark this, has lost his lawsuit, uh, um, challenging or attempting to stop Robbie from building the usual kind of uh, underground swimming pools and cinemas yeah. because um, it puts uh, uh, Jimmy's tower house, this sort of Art, Art Nouveau <laughs> masterpiece full of, of Jimmy's paintings. It, it sort of threatens the, the stability. The structural the, integrity. The structural integrity. Um, of the house. Well, I mean, on the one on the one hand, I disapprove hugely of people building uber basements. On the other hand, it's always fun when Jimmy Page loses a court case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. So, and what about you? Any highlights from your? Nothing particularly to talk about in the last sort of. Time. I just want to mention that we have put together a, a, a best of 2018 Spotify playlist. This just proves we aren't uh, total old farts at play, Mark. Aren't we? No, we're not. So I've, I've. Uh, what, what, what we have <laughs> speak, here is speak for yourself, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so th- this essentially is is, th- is thirty tracks of court areas this year. Uh, it's everything from um, the wonderful unknown mortal orchestra to white denim to the title track from the Arctic Monkeys album. There's also some old timers there. There's, there's, there's a wonderful song God from for that. Right, Kudas. <laughs> um, just an exquisite song with with a deep sort of political tinge to it called Jesus and Woody. There's Bob. Skaggs's marvellous version of Neil Young's song On the Beach. We've even found room for Donald Trump's best friend Kanye West in there um, (laughs) and various other bits and pieces. And although it wasn't, of course, recorded this year, the track that I think knocked us out in the office from from Prince's Piano and Microphone 1983 tape, 17 Days, which I I think is just one of the most outstanding things Prince ever did... It's a fabulous album. Piano playing. I mean, you, um, you, you well, particularly love well, this I, piano playing. I love this piano playing. I mean, the first real indication of it for all of us was How Come You Don't Love Me Anymore, which which uh, was on a... Was it a B-side? It was a B-side, I think. Yeah. Which is just him harmonising himself and playing piano. This, uh, you know, I bet there's loads more of him just playing piano in, mm-hmm. in, in the vaults of Paisley Park. And, and he's a wonderful piano player, and he sings beautifully while playing the piano. That... That Aretha Franklin oh. thing of, you know, how the activity of playing really sort of makes the singing work in a particular sort of he's, way. You know, he's such a moving singer. Yeah. I mean, there's so much emotion in this vocal. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily... You think of Prince in, in many different yeah. ways, but actually just the sort of naked kind of human honestly, feeling of Honestly, this, this is the best album he's released in, in the a last while. 15 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's one, one other song I just want to mention from this playlist, which, which is um, from Tracy Thorne's album. It's a, it's, it's a lo- really long track called Sister, which I would say is one of, one of the sort of most powerful kind of statements mm. of feminism and, and female solidarity 
popularity that I've heard all year in a, in a year in which yeah. that has become such a such a massive uh, theme. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's an absolutely brilliant song. You know, we, we we like Tracy without necessarily liking everything she's done as mm-hmm. a musician. She was on again on Desert Island Discs recently. It was so engaging and interesting. You know, the, the, yeah. the she tells. Very interesting story. She writes very nicely for the, the for the New Statesman. Uh, yeah, she's she, she, she's a good one. I've always Casey. I've always loved her voice mm-hmm. and her writing. I like the fact that she's been a kind of quiet presence. Yeah. In, in in the kind of pop scene, you know. But I but I think she's she's very special. Yeah. She's also turned into a, a pretty decent writer. Yeah. You know, Beds at Disco Queen and her columns for the New, New Statesman. New Statesman. Yeah. So 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 we like Tracy very and, much. Um, so um, I think we're going to bow out as we normally do with a last clip from the week's audio interview. But um, before we do that, we'd like to wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas. A very cool Yule and a very happy 2019. This will be the last podcast for this year. Yep. We will see you again Absolutely. in January. Yep, and we're going to go out with Keith talking about Andrew Lou Golden. It's always a good one. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Bye. Between Andrew and ourselves, it became like a sort of comfort, <laughs> like, you know, okay, you know. And he got us interested in, uh, you know, actually motivated us. And that way we were a blues band, pub, bars, and, you know, that was it. I mean, we had no aspirations apart from promoting Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, and saying, everybody should know these wonderful music, and we'll give you, like, a rough demonstration of how it goes, you know. And we had no great... You know, because we certainly weren't, like, gearing ourselves up to, like, bust the charts or anything. But I think when Andrew arrived, we suddenly, suddenly everything, the timing and everything that was happening, there it was. You saw the opportunity, and Andrew saw it first, it pointed it out to us. And then, in a way, it started to snowball, you know. Once it took off, uh, and Andrew said, well, you know, and if we make it, you know, then the only way to do that is to really kind of, Play off of the Beatles in the other way. Okay, they're the Fab Four mop tops at the time, and it was really you know Beatle mania time. You know, four suits and blah blah. And uh, the only way we're going to do that is by like sort of being you know the other the other side of the coin. In other words, heads and tails. You know, and uh, in other words, you're the bad boys. Yeah, and we certainly, you know, ever since, I've certainly been in the role. <laughs> in a typecasting. You know. That was Keith Richards talking to Adam Sweeting, concluding this year's final episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Your hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.